Welcome, everyone. You're tuning in to the Beyond the Pulse podcast, brought to you by the expert doctors at My Cardiologist, where we discuss a wide range of topics related to cardiovascular wellness and provide you with the knowledge, motivation, tips, and tools to help you make informed choices about your heart health. My Cardiologist is proud to be a leading provider of comprehensive cardiovascular care, serving the South Florida community for over 60 years. And we're thrilled to extend our care beyond the clinic through this podcast. Thank you for joining us. I'm Dr. Linda Zwirling. I'm a cardiologist with the group My Cardiologist. I've uh, been in town for a number of years. My special interest in cardiovascular medicine is prevention, and especially as stress uh, relates to the existence, the development, and aggravation of heart disease. Awesome. And today we're going to be exploring the connection between mental health and cardiology. All right. So, yes. so doctor, I know that it's a big topic right now, mental health, anxiety, depression. It feels like it's it's up. How long have you been in practice for? Uh, about 40 years. 40 years. So have you seen yourself an uptick in mental health struggles? Yes. I, I, you know, our times are very troubling, world politics, uh, uh, et cetera, family stress, work stress. And I think it's accelerated, I think, in the last uh, few years, especially uh, aggravated by the pandemic. Mm. With post-pandemic uh, stress, uh, PTSD actually, for healthcare workers especially, I must say. So yes, I think uh, stressful. These are stressful times more than more than in the past, I believe. How does one's mental health impact their cardiovascular health? Well, it's a two-way street. Uh, stress is a risk factor for development of heart disease, and if you have heart or vascular disease, I should say, in addition. Stress can aggravate it and create all kinds of problems relative to these underlying conditions. So stress can both cause and aggravate cardiovascular disease. And what's the evidence that supports that claim? Well, I have a stack of files <laughs> if you want to look at them and several books which I can refer to. But there's a lot of, a lot of evidence to support this uh, in the literature, both from individual case studies and uh, uh, multi-center multi studies demonstrating that both stress and its secondary manifestations, that is anxiety and depression, have direct effects on the heart and vascular system. Now, the effects are usually mediated by adrenal hormones. Adrenal hormones are the stress hormones that we normally have in our body that alert us to dangerous situations and keep us ready to provide an accurate response. But in individuals, the stress is excessive. And it goes over the top and, and then leads to various manifestations. In patients, hypertension, elevation of blood sugar, cholesterol. There was a study, interesting study done of accountants around tax time. They looked at their cholesterol levels through the year. When do you think the cholesterol levels went up? Tax time. April 15th. Right. Uh, other, other things, abusive behavior, um, alcohol, dependency, uh, some of the drugs are actually directly toxic to the heart. Alcohol is directly toxic to the heart. It can cause a condition called cardiomyopathy, which is a weakening of the heart muscle. It can cause arrhythmias. Uh, cocaine can kill you instantly. It can cause a heart attack or a stroke. Mm. So these are abusive alternatives to stress. My job is to identify what the stressors are in an individual patient and find ways to reduce them. So I understand how chronic stress can have an effect, but how does anxiety and depression, I mean, you just kind of talked about it a little bit when yes. you're 
anxiety or depressed, you yes. you lean into these abusive behaviors. But is there, like stress, a direct link to it affecting your cardiovascular? Yes, oh. as I said earlier, the adrenal hormones, both cortisol and epinephrine and norepinephrine, which are produced in the adrenal normally, are produced in excessive amounts with stress. They have direct effects on the cardiovascular system. They raise the heart rate, they raise the blood pressure, and they also increase inflammatory uh, enzymes in your body, which are generators of atherosclerotic disease. So that is stress. Now, depression sounds a little different, and it is different. It has a different manifestation. Depression can occur in, in chronic situations. The patients may be already depressed to begin with, or related to their medical problems, they can become depressed secondarily. These also have hormonal effects in the body um, and also uh, produce sleep disturbance, which mm. can lead to also to hypertension and arrhythmias, and also uh, substance abuse and noncompliance, which is a big one. So depressed patients who are depressed to begin with or depressed because of their heart and vascular disease secondarily, they don't follow re regimens that are important, dietary exercise, medications, follow-ups with clinics, rehabilitation if necessary, cardiac rehabilitation, that is, so depressed, depression, either in a primary form or a secondary form related to their vascular and cardiac disease, can lead to all these problems. Sleep disturbance, abusive behavior, noncompliance with uh, regimens that are uh, prescribed for them, uh, things like that. I want to relate another very interesting medical condition called the broken heart syndrome. I don't know if you've heard of it. It has other names, the sad heart syndrome. Medical terms, it's takatsubo, cardiomyopathy from the Japanese. The broken heart syndrome is a relationship between a severe emotional event and cardiomyopathy, a fun dysfunctional heart function. And it is well recognized, it's established, documented, etc. and there's medical treatment for it, beta blockers. So this is the ultimate example of where anxiety, depression, uh, severe losses, etc., can lead to a direct effect on the heart. It's called the broken heart syndrome. Very Whoa, interesting. That is interesting. So a broken heart is real, like it can actually... It's like, a real entity, medically wow. described, well-established, and treated, treatable. Wow. Yeah. Now, I, I, I'm understanding that anxiety and depression and uh, stress, it can lead to cardiovascular dysfunction, but how can you recognize between if you're just anxious or you have an actual cardiovascular issue? Interesting. I don't know if you remember a movie with Jack Nicholson where he continued to have chest pain, was taken to emergency room, and the alert physician in the emergency room realized that this was not medical, this was anxiety. Mm. And uh, several visits uh, proved that, and uh, he was being treated for it subsequently successfully. However, uh, it is difficult to assess. Some, it, this is a masked problem. We don't really easily recognize it. A lot of depression is masked. So it is imperative for the physician to talk to the patient and the patient's relative uh, significant others because they are living with this patient. Right. And they can more readily identify that these, uh, these anxiety and or depression, which go together, incidentally, very commonly exist. Uh, there is actually, uh, I can show you an example of two tests that are done. One is a screening test to identify uh, stress risk in patients. It's an actual documented test. And there's another one, which is called a patient health questionnaire, depression screening scale. Oh, wow. What's that test called that if, if a it's patient the B, I think it's the BDI test. And it's a well-documented test used by psychologists and available to anyone that's online available to identify and get you a risk score to see how your uh, stress risk is. 
Um, but I think talking directly to the patient in, 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 a, in a clinical setting, and even more importantly, talking to the patient's family. Mm. I think that that's the best way to uncover this hidden problem, which has a significant impact on cardiovascular disease and, and prevention. Now, if a doctor is going to talk to a patient's family, you know, it's, it's, it's on the patient also to be relaying this stuff to the family right. as well, not right. just assuming that they're going to see the signs. I think that's the toughest problem. Um, I think that people have a, uh, a stigma of having a mental problem, think they're crazy. They're not crazy. They're having an excessive amount of either, either the normal amounts of stress above and beyond or depression in relation to significant problems in their life, be it family stress, work stress, and I'm thinking now world stress. Right. As, as of now. So I, I'm going to suggest you some ideas that uh, are therapeutic in terms of reducing stress. Okay. I see you brought a bunch of literature here. Yes. That's, that's the start of this talk about how to reduce stress. So... Originally, the first book that was really published and was, had an impact was the type A behavior in the heart. This was two psychologists uh, who discovered that type A behavior, which is the uh, compulsive, obsessive, uh, high-stress lifestyle, was related to heart and vascular disease. Uh, mm. Type A behavior. The type B behavior, obviously, is a more desired, more relaxed form and less risk. Uh, the second is a kind of a humorous approach to this. Uh, there's a whole series of dummy books. This is the stress management one. Uh, <laughs> and in a kind of semi-humorous way, it talks about the genesis of stress and how to manage it. Um, another book, uh, obviously in the same topic, and I'm going to get to my most important one in a minute, is this one, Learn to Relax. There are many, many books out there. And one other actually was written by one of my ex-patients, deceased, unfortunately, a dentist mm. in Miami, uh, Life Without Stress by Dr. Art Sokoloff, a very, very interesting book. talks about the history going way back ages ago in the genesis of meditation and Eastern, Euro Eastern meditation principles. The most important book, though, is this one. It's called The Relaxation Response. I'm not sure you can see it. Who's that one by? Yes, by Dr. Herb Benson. Dr. Benson was a very reputable cardiac, uh, cardiologist at Harvard. He used this book in his hypertension clinic and discovered uh, the methodology, which is relaxation response, reduced the patient's need for medication, sometimes even eliminating it completely in a hypertension setting, really? high, high blood pressure setting. Why do you find that this book is, is the most impactful out of all first these of books all, First of all, the first half of the book discusses the history of, the, of, the, of, the, of stress, where historically, how, has it been, how it has been dealt with over the years, and the second portion, he gives very simple, easy-to-read uh, ideas on how to reduce stress using meditation. So meditation is one of the hallmarks of stress reduction therapy. So I have quoted this book. I've actually given copies to patients. I think it's an extraordinarily important book. It was a bestseller when it first came out. Nice. So the relaxation response is a general term used to apply to methodologies to reduce stress using either meditation, exercise, walking. Walking a dog is the best, I think, by the way, because having the, the dog and the pet and the family really sure. also reduces stress. Uh, meditation, uh, yoga, massage, um, uh, those are the kind of things that I think are the most useful. I also tell patients that because of the stressful times we live in, watching the news at 11 o'clock before going to sleep and then taking that stressful newscast to bed is the wrong thing to do. So I recommend humor in their life, adding humor to their lives. I personally like to watch Seinfeld. That's my personal That's a good show. That's my personal it's choice. It's funny. <laughs> so around 11 o'clock, I'm watching Seinfeld, and then I'm, I'm popping off, and I think I have a more restful night because it's less stressful. Wow. That's so. Th I, I've yeah. always heard the I term 
laughter is the best medicine, but you're yeah. like prescribing Seinfeld right now. I'm actually, I actually write it down on a paper. I write a prescription. I said, <laughs> I said, get a dog, <laughs> take a walk, uh, light exercise, aerobic, not sure. weightlifting, uh, and and add humor to your life. I actually have a list of movies that I recommend to them to watch. One, one of them was the one about uh, stress with Jack Nicholson. I think it's as good as it gets. So <laughs> I have a whole list of these, but uh, I try to watch Seinfeld as much as I can at night. Uh, Friends is fine or anything else like it. Uh, before going to sleep, rather than sitting up and watching the 11 o'clock news, which is terrible. Our local news is all about murders, and the national news is all about horrible things going on around the world. So right. why take that to bed? That's a great point. You know, I can imagine it would affect your sleep, not just your mental state, but yes. you can't really get into REM sleep. Is that true? That is absolutely correct. REM sleep is so important in terms of relaxation. If you don't acquire enough REM sleep during the night, you're going to have a bad day the next day. So for the listeners that don't know what REM sleep is, what is REM sleep? REM means rapid eye movement. It's the most deepest form of sleep. Uh, rapid eye movement is measured in a sleep lab. Uh, and actually many patients, I have to recommend sleep testing because they do have sleep disorders, including obstructive sleep apnea, which also impacts on the heart, causes high blood pressure and arrhythmias. So REM sleep is the desired form of sleep, uh, the deepest form of sleep, the most restful, and gives you... Uh, much better relaxation. The most restful sleep, because there's sometimes where I sleep, you know, seven, eight hours, and I wake up still exhausted because I yeah. didn't, like, rest. That's right. And yeah, you haven't achieved enough REM sleep. Right, and so most likely. what I hear is during REM sleep is where we heal a lot uh, internally, externally, like, that's correct. kind of our time to recharge. That is correct. How does a lack of good quality sleep and rest affect cardiology? Well, as I said a little earlier, uh, it affects, first of all, blood pressure. It is a main cause of hypertension. Often patients will say, why is my blood pressure high when I get up in the morning and lower in the day? It's because they haven't slept well and haven't achieved enough REM sleep at night. Mm -hmm. Now, those patients may also have an organic sleep problem beyond just stress. So a sleep test is indicated in those cases. Um, but I, I think that, in answer to your question, hypertension and arrhythmias, those are the most common problems related to inadequate sleep. Arrhythmias uh, can sometimes be minor, but sometimes can be more serious, including atrial fibrillation. Many of our patients with atrial fibrillation, we always we will recommend a sleep test to determine if sleep apnea is a component as the cause of their atrial fibrillation. So there's a direct relationship between hypertension, atrial fibrillation, and having a bad day in general <laughs> uh, from not sleeping properly. So what is atrial Fibrillation. Atrial fibrillation is an arrhythmia uh, very common in the population, many times unrecognized. Patients don't feel it. May present, however, with a stroke as an initial manifestation because it's associated with blood clots inside the heart. Whoa. The part of the heart where a generator is the top part of the heart called the atrium. The atrium, instead of beating regularly, beats irregularly. Mm. And in doing so, it promotes blood clotting inside the heart. Those clots can travel once they break off anywhere, especially to the brain. So patient that comes in with an unexpected stroke for whatever reason, a common reason for that is atrial fibrillation. So that's detected either in the hospital or by cardiac monitoring as an outpatient, which we do. Wow. And then what is hypertension? Hypertension is high blood pressure. Okay. There, there are a lot of different kinds of high blood pressure, since you asked. Well, the most common type is genetic, family history. You've mm -hmm. inherited it from your family. And there's really no cause. It's, an, it's unidentified. There are other causes of hypertension which are, which are identifiable and treatable more specifically. For example, one is the renal arteries. The arteries going to your kidneys. If they are narrowed for whatever reason, either 
for genetic reasons or atherosclerosis, the kidneys suffer and raise hormones, renin and angiotensin, from the kidneys that raise blood pressure. That's called renal artery stenosis hypertension. Another form is a more rare form is the adrenal glands, the ones I told you about earlier that produce the stress hormones. Mm -hmm. They can grow uh, excessive uh, tumors or hyper or enlargement, and they overproduce those stress hormones as, as a kind of a pathological problem, and they have to be either treated medically and or surgically. So there are different forms of hypertension. The most common is genetic or what we call idiopathic. We don't know the cause, unfortunately. Obesity is a factor. Mm. Uh, excessive intake of uh, caffeine could be a factor, and especially salt. Those are the factors. So, And again, sleep apnea. So those are the many variable types of hypertension. So in any given case, we have to sort it out and figure out which one's going on. So hypertension, high blood pressure, a little bit synonymous. They're synonymous. Okay. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So you, you mentioned caf caffeine intake. I feel like that's, in this day uh, and age, a lot of people are drinking the energy drinks, the yeah. coffee. Yeah. Does it differ from person to person? What is too much? Yeah, there is a definitely an individual sensitivity to it. I would say above three cups of coffee a day, and that's regular. Decaffeinated coffee, by the way, still has caffeine. It's not zero. Really? Yes. Oh. So in a patient who has a significant caffeine-related problem, and the most common one I can tell you about is atrial fibrillation. Uh, by the way, caffeine is present in high, in high amounts in chocolate and tea and most sodas. The only soda I know for sure that doesn't have caffeine is Sprite. Mm. So caffeine in excess, not two cups a day, four, six, and especially Red Bull and the other high-dose caffeine they are potentially arrhythmogenic. They can lead to arrhythmias, PVCs, as premature ventricular beats, which can be hazardous, and, of course, atrial fibrillation. Oh, my goodness. So caffeine in small doses, actually recent studies have shown it's beneficial to the heart in low doses. But in high doses, it can be pathological and harmful. Interesting. So it can actually benefit the heart. In small doses, it seems to be beneficial, yes. And what's the science behind that? It's just come out. I've just read the articles recently. There is no hard science behind it, but in population studies are demonstrating that those that drink coffee, uh, caffeinated beverages moderately seem to have a lower risk of heart disease. That's very interesting. interesting. It is. Hey. These, I, things, these things change. <laughs> it's not etched in stone. Right. Yeah. A lot of up and downs on eggs and salt and things like that, but uh, low dose of caffeine seems to be okay. High dose may be, in, in, in specific individuals, right. harmful. Very interesting. Yeah. Okay. I got to be honest. This past five minutes here has stressed me out a little bit, <laughs> talking about all this stuff, I'm sorry. blood clots, all I, this. I, so, think, I think you need to come to my next talk. It's called <laughs> De-Stressing the Heart. Oh, nice. When is that? Uh, actually, we don't have a date yet, but this was one we carried on at South Miami Hospital a couple of years ago. And I, I worked, uh, I, I spoke with uh, two, uh, two psych uh, one social worker and one psychologist. And so as a team, we spoke about the genesis of heart uh, of stress, how it affected the heart, and how we can reduce it. And I want to talk about some of that now, if I can. Please, yeah. yeah so the reduction. So I, let, I, I alluded to it earlier. Uh, aerobic exercise, not weightlifting, aerobic exercise, even moderate number of steps you take, ten, the 10,000 steps, it's real. So moderate aerobic exercise does not have to be even in a gym. You can walk in a safe place, have an exercise in the house or a treadmill, I recommend getting a dog, <laughs> if, you, if you can handle it, because walking the dog has two benefits. One is the exercise, and two is the relaxation benefits of pets. This has been well-documented in literature. Mm. In fact, in some hospitals, uh, in our hospital included, we have visits from pets, pet-friendly 
pet friendly visits. That's cool. <laughs> to patients, but and some patients want their pets in the in the hospital. We try to, to do that. It's difficult, but having a pet is a relaxation modality. The second thing I recommend is I talked to you about humor earlier, which I think is extremely important. Uh, music, uh, music is relaxation at night. Oftentimes, we put on at home uh, a tape of either music or waterfalls as a relaxation method to help us sleep. Cool. Uh, massage is excellent. Yoga, terrific. All good. All good. Now, um, and meditation, uh, as described in relaxation response, is really very simple. It doesn't require a lot of methodology, equipment, or anything. It's very, very simple and very effective in reducing stress. Now, counseling needs to be addressed. There are two other modalities. Counseling, either by a psychologist, a social worker, pastoral counseling, uh, group th- groups of various kinds. In our cardiac rehab program at Baptist Health, we have a social worker and a psychologist involved in, in a group setting to help the group with sh- who are there because they have heart problems to help reduce their stress. And the last piece is medications. I, I, I say that last because that's really like a last resort. Mm. Medications have ups and downs. In patients who have cardiac arrhythmias and heart problems, some of the psychotropic medications actually may be harmful. So we have to be very cautious in the use of psychotropic medication. Those are medicines used for chronic depression prescribed by psychiatrists. So we have to have a good communication going with the psychiatrist and the patient to make sure they're not taking something that may be harmful. And the others are tranquilizers, which I, I highly try to avoid, especially in the older population because they have adverse reactions and, of course, they're addictive. So medications are really, uh, and sleeping pills, I might add as well, are all potentially harmful and should be really individualized uh, because of those potential risks. What are some some of the biggest potential risks to some of these medications? Why you would want to make this the last resort? Well, as I've alluded to, uh, some of the medicines may have direct toxic effects on the heart. I don't mean killing you, but I mean causing elevation in uh, the risk of arrhythmias, heart uh, irregularities. Um, the second thing is uh, the tranquilizers, um, although they don't have any direct effects on the heart, um, uh, they, may, they may be too uh, excessive in certain individuals, especially the older population. Some of them actually get excited from tranquilizers in a, in a converse way, so, mm-hmm. uh, and they're addictive. So uh, I'm being very cautious uh, now. And I, if, if a psychotropic medication is indicated, I often will refer them to a psychiatrist who can accurately, uh, accurately prescribe them. Uh, but there is some potential risk. I'm not saying they're not wholly in- contraindicated, and they can be used, but in the proper situation with the proper individual. But I, in my experience, it should be used rarely. Right, and we went over a lot of different techniques throughout this whole thing. Has there been a specific relaxation technique that you've seen in your patients be the most effective? Well, uh, on their own, uh, sitting in a quiet room, uh, going through muscle relaxation, which the Relaxation Response Book and others talk about, and using mantras, uh, spoken words repeatedly, uh, background music, soft music, spa-type music. Um, these are things you can do easily at home. Uh, during the day, you, if you're at work, you can close the door, turn the lights out if necessary, put some music on, and spend five minutes in a relaxation mode. Uh, that adds up in a beneficial way, in a preventive way. So I think that that's... That's my simplest method. Now, other things can be used, uh, in, including uh, groups, uh, psychological counseling, and yoga. 
Yoga, uh, in various kinds and modalities, have an extremely beneficial effect on relaxation. Why do you think so that I, is? I actually recommend them to some patients, but not everyone's uh, interested in that. So sure. you have to have a lot of alternatives to suggest. And I told you my most important one is humor. <laughs> I think that's the best <laughs> myself. Why do you think yoga is so effective? Well, it, it's, it does a number of things. It, it, uh, first of all, it's, it's a relaxing setting. Uh, muscle relaxation is the key. Uh, core and peripheral muscle re relaxation. Uh, and it can be done in a lot of different ways, obviously. But not, uh, patients who are arthritic and much older, it's more difficult. So I would generally recommend it to a younger population who are more uh, able to handle it. Uh, but it is both a mind relaxation and musculoskeletal relaxation. And combined produce a lot of relaxation. Okay. Yeah. So you mentioned how you recommend yoga to kind of younger people. Let's let's kind of dive into why young people should care about all this. This process of atherosclerosis or hardening arteries starts in young life. Mm. Um, and unfortunately, some individuals have a higher risk because they have genetic high cholesterol levels, hypertension, obesity, uh, and the stresses of life, including new parenthood, uh, job changes, uh, economic stuff, uh, family, uh, marital stress. Sure. So young individuals, uh, in a preventive way, need to be recognized as, as this being, these being problems. The patients themselves may come to me with the varying symptoms that suggest they're under stress. Uh, and it's important for the cardiologist to sort out what are organic real issues, medical issues that are pertinent to underlying cardiac issues, or are they just clearly emotional issues, or a combination of the two. So what do they come to me with? They come to me with palpitations. That's probably the most common complaint. What is a palpitation? It's typically uh, an irregular heartbeat. Uh, sometimes it's not an irregular heartbeat. Sometimes it's just an acceleration of the normal heartbeat. Um, uh, sweating might be an issue. Sleeplessness would be an issue. Uh, upper, change in appetite, either up or down. Weight mm -hmm. gains up or down. Uh, those are the kind of things that patients bring to me. Uh, and it's important for the cardiologist or the internist who have ever seen the patient to sort out what those are and identify with the patient and the patient's wife and family to determine what those uh, issues are that are causing the stress. Now, they may also have heart disease, so we have to test them appropriately. Sure. But very often in, in a younger population, because it's less likely for them to have heart disease, that we find that the main problem, if not the whole problem, is emotional. And... Uh, a family history is important here uh, of, of uh, depression, anxiety, panic attacks, sure. uh, fainting spells for no apparent reason, um, chest pain, the second most common complaint. First palpitation, second is chest pain. Chest pain can have a lot of different causes. It can be emotional. It can be your heart. It can be your lungs, your esophagus, which goes right through your chest, uh, the swallowing tube. Uh, sometimes it's an inflammation of the heart muscle or the, or the lining of the heart. There are lots of issues, but in a young, otherwise healthy population, more commonly it's going to be a stress-mediated problem. And the symptoms that they bring to me, palpitations, chest pains, sweats, sleeplessness, weight changes, those are all uh, clues as to the probability that this is not a medical problem, it's an emotional problem. And I do my best to pick it up. I, I however, will have to say, look, I just can't get into this any more deeply, I'm going to give you the name of a competent psychologist or sure. a psychiatrist or social worker or, or pastoral counseling, whichever seems appropriate for that individual to further identify the problem and, and, and hope to uh, uh, reduce it. 
So yeah. even though, because we've talked about in previous episodes on, on the show how you should go get checked out when you're about in your 50s, a little bit later in life, but yes. you should really be paying attention in taking preventative measures as a young individual because this is kind of where it all starts. That is absolutely correct. Okay. Uh, it actually turns out that pediatricians are checking cholesterol and blood pressure. Really? Yeah, they should be because the, the problem doesn't start when you're 40 or 50 years old. You've already got the problem. Right. The generation of the problem is taking years, uh, if not all your life. To, yeah. So we spoke about earlier in the show about how there's a little bit of a stigma with the mental health thing. I feel like specifically with young people, yes. that stigma is going away quickly and people are really open about their mental and emotional state. Yes, I think that's true. Do you think this hyper-focus on recognizing your anxiety, depression, all these mental health issues, do you think that might be accelerating the problem or do you think it's actually helping? That's an interesting question. I hadn't thought of it. Um, in, in some cases, it might be. It might be making them hyper-concerned, overly concerned. But I think on balance, uh, you're better off looking into it okay, and being sure that this is not a real serious organic problem and it's more likely going to be emotional. But that's an interesting question that I hadn't, uh, hadn't occurred to me. And it is possible that uh, in this generation, uh, and I have to add, you know, substance abuse being a problem, that, um, that, tie, that ties into this. Um, some of the symptoms are not only emotional, they're mushroom. Really? And other things related, yes. Because young people are focused on this, which you think has an overall net positive, yes. how can a young person recognize that they're anxiousness, their anxiety that they have uh, pinpointed is is accurate, is is real. How can somebody recognize no, They need an anxiety? objective view. Uh, they can't do it themselves. A family member who may be smart enough to realize it may, may be the first step, but they, they're going to have to come see a professional, mm. um, typically a primary care physician or an internist and, if necessary, a cardiologist, to sort it out. And honestly, it is difficult sometimes. And... Uh, uh, we're surprised sometimes because I said, gee, I really think this is entirely emotional. And all of a sudden, after one or two simple screening tests, I said, you know what? Maybe there is more to this. We have to delve a little deeper. But, but seeing real heart disease, unless you're born with it, congenital heart disease, mm -hmm. seeing real heart disease below 30, 35, 40 even uh, is rare. Unless you are abusive. You're smoking heavily. Sure. You're overweight. You have high blood pressure and cholesterol. Even though... Uh, would think that more than likely they're not having problems. In those individuals, we have seen heart disease and had to and had to take care of it. But to answer your question more directly, I, I think that stress, we all have stress to a greater or lesser degree, and these are stressful times, and it's generating a lot of varying symptoms that simulate heart disease, but in many cases are not. But it is really up to the individual to seek attention and get themselves checked out. So you mentioned something in that um, yes. last statement that kind of struck a chord with me with being born with a heart condition. Right. I actually just had a friend, uh, Luis, this past week, 26 years old. Mm -hmm. he, he passed away in mm -hmm. his sleep. Uh, he was born prematurely, and he had a heart condition where only two valves were operational. And uh, he died suddenly in his mm -hmm. sleep from an, a large heart. Yes. Is there anything that these people with a born condition such as his, can they do anything to mitigate that? Well, uh, hopefully it was recognized at birth by his doctors and hopefully a pediatric cardiologist saw him and either did the catheterization to determine, heart cath to determine what the problem was and see if it's fixable. 
surgically correctable. Um, I don't know what he individually had done or identified. Did he know he had heart disease at from birth? Someone he, had told him? He, he did know. And they, seeing a cardiologist? No, because when he was born, he uh, they did a surgery and they thought that it was fixed. And they so thought they it was all good. At birth? Well, they thought, yeah. Uh, apparently... And was he in the, was he being followed periodically? I don't think so. Okay, so follow-up's important. Mm. Uh, things that are repaired when you're very little, as your body grows, can become more of a problem. So perhaps even further corrective surgery might have needed to be done, or and or medication. I can't speak to this case. Sure. But uh, I have a cousin, for example, my own cousin, who was born with a defect. It was fixed at birth. And as he grew, another valve had to be fixed as his body size changed. Mm. So... Uh, Obviously, in a situation where there's congenital heart disease that is born with it, needs to be followed up uh, on a regular basis to determine as the person gets older and bigger whether or not other additional defects occur and need to be repaired. And that is a possibility here. So to keep your finger on the pulse and just make sure that you're, you're keeping track of all this. Correct. Okay. So have you noticed with your patients a difference between men and women and mental health issues and stress and all of this? Well, that's a very interesting question. Uh, we have to think of the age groups we're talking about. So I, I do see a fair amount of young men and women as well as older ones. And the, in the younger population, it's pretty equal. Most of it's related to work stress, uh, a tough boss, a hard work situation, and raising children while they're trying to manage uh, raising a family. Raising, uh, running a business mm. or being employed. Uh, more commonly, perhaps, in women than men, men are more concerned about uh, earning an income and being successful and providing for the family. But women at young, older ages are starting getting into menopausal times, so the menopause and those symptoms related to menopause start to kick in. And they need special treatment sometimes, including hormonal therapy from their gynecologist. Um, but to be honest with you... Um, since so many women are in the workforce now, their 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 stresses are kind of equal mm. um, in terms of work stress, particularly, and also a, a woman a little more responsible issue because they have to be they're the mother, they're right. trying to you know t- get their kids to school, and hopefully the father can can chip in on that and take kids to school and, and the ballet and uh, and soccer practice. So a, a, a well-run family, <laughs> emotionally speaking, is one in which both the father and the wife share responsibilities equally. We try to do that in our life as well. Um, as you get older, I think the menopause starts to become more of an issue. Women's h- heart is a separate topic entirely. Uh, they tend to be more immune from heart disease of the atherosclerotic variety, unless they have strong and genetic and personal risk factors until after menopause. So in women who present in their 30s, 20s, 30s, whatever, with chest pain, palpitations, such things like that, more than likely, and I'm, I'm being honest here, more than likely they're emotionally based. However, a, a significant number, and we can't ignore that, do have cardiac problems. Interesting. So we well, have to do the necessary tests, and in the younger women, uh, female population, it, it is, I would say, more likely to be emotionally based, but we can't ignore the fact that they also have heart disease. Interesting. Yeah. And we actually do have an entire episode, if you want to check it out, with Dr. Frost that goes into I'm sure she great, did a great job with that. detail. Yeah. It was, it was a great episode. My colleague, yeah. So I want to talk about a little bit about your professional life because you've been doing this for 40 years as a doctor. That's amazing. Don't say it again. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm proud of it. I'm proud of it. Yeah, I mean, that's that's quite awesome. And still doing it, by the way, very actively. Yeah. Yes. So 
what have been some good practices that you've kind of refined in your work? So in the, when we close the door and I'm alone with the patient and or a significant other, uh, I, I go through the usual routines, you know, chest symptoms, tightness, et cetera, et cetera. But I do spend a fair amount of time asking about other stuff that is impactful on the heart, but not necessarily identify it as a heart issue. So yes, I'm talking about stress. I'm talking about family life, talking about work stress. Uh, have they had any significant losses in their lives? Did they lose a family member? Did they lose a dog? Because of the broken heart Recently, syndrome. Because of the broken heart and, right. and also acceleration of other symptoms relative to an existing heart condition. Uh, when I lost my dog about five years ago, uh, it was so emotional, it took me about a week to recover. Mm. And I was uh, not doing well. I wasn't sleeping right. and it's, it, it, took a, it had an impact on me. So even the loss of a pet can be very significant. Losses are very significant here. Mm. Loss of self-esteem. Uh, loss of job, having a heart attack, uh, think about it for a minute, is it, a loss of self-esteem. You imagine yourself as being impenetrable. Sure. Nothing could happen to me. Bang, I have a heart attack. What does that mean? I'm not good anymore. I'm damaged goods. Ooh. And that has a significant impact on depression mm. for these patients. So there's a superimposed secondary depression relative to any kind of loss, including health condition changes. So... That's important. So what I do in the office, I try to get into that. Obviously, time is a limitation, so I can't spend an hour or so doing it, but I do touch base on every patient that I see. And then I try to insert some form of humor into the visit. Many patients come in, their blood pressure is off the chart. We have them lay down, five, ten minutes, it comes down. Then I start talking to them, and I think what I do is I try to insert some humor into the, into the visit, and their pressures, I, I've done this. I've actually looked at this. as The pressures go down even further. So uh, trying to in, uh, insert something humorous, something relaxing, something personal beyond the medical part. Right. Uh, where did you grow up? Uh, tell me about your background. Where did you go to school? What, what are your interests? Uh, helps a lot to reduce uh, the stress in the office and enables the patient to open up and, and feel more confident in telling me what the problems are. Um, I, I honestly do this. I'm not making this up, and it really has been extraordinarily helpful. At the end of the visit, if I identify that stress is a main problem, I'm going to spend some time talking about all the things we've talked about. I say, you really got to deal with this stress. It's as, it's as important as diabetes, as high blood pressure, as smoking, as cholesterol. Many of them are interactive, by the way, with each wow. other. And I said, you got to do something to reduce your stress. And these are some suggestions. And I've gone so far as to write them down on a paper, Sometimes I'd put it in a prescription form. I say, you gotta, you got to relax. you got to do this. you got to read this book. I show them the book. So uh, that's the way I, I close the, the visit, and I think it's universally uh, beneficial. When you're going to a cardiologist, you definitely want to look for somebody who cares and somebody that's asking you questions and making you laugh a little bit, having a good time, yes. as well as the education. Yes, I think that's beneficial. Let's talk a little bit about, I you said a common condition that people come to you with is stress that's work-related, both with men and women. I hear this phrase, um, burnout, like professional burnout. What Have you noticed this in some of your older patients? Yes. And, and what's the what's the effect between that burnout and cardiology? Well, it, as we've talked about already, that's another form of stress. It's an, another a generator of depression. And it's very common among healthcare professionals Pandemic is a fantastic example. Recently, uh, the, the stresses on the on the healthcare workers and the first responders and physicians, etc., during that time was immense. 
and many patients, many of the healthcare workers either left the profession because of that, or developed PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, needing actual treatment for their emotional, uh, the, the emotional impact on them during that time. Then uh, just regular, you know, practice is very stressful. People don't realize how much we go through nights, weekends, emergencies, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Very stressful decision making to make, life threatening decisions to make right. every day on a daily basis. Even just writing a simple prescription can be stressful. You might give the patient the wrong dose. God knows what could happen. Hopefully not. So professional burnout is a is a key problem. Baptist Health System had set up a clinic, uh, not a clinic, a seminar for healthcare workers physicians and non-professionals, uh, nurse practitioners, social workers, whoever wanted to come uh, in, a, in, a, in a, a setting where they could talk about their stresses, their work stresses, and try to improve or reduce them if possible. So professional burnout, not only just among our patients who work in a bank or a financial institution or wherever, a uh, very strong problem for, the, for physicians. And uh, dropout has been a common problem, either actual dropout or rarely suicide. My mm. daughter worked in a, in a setting where her, she's a professional, a, f- a physician assistant, her supervisor committed suicide during the pandemic. Wow. It was in the, in the national news at Columbia. So, uh, so that professional burnout can build up and get can to have a point. extreme consequences. Yeah. Seriously. Wow. Yeah. I mean, talking to you, it almost seems like that the emotional stress can yes. be big time equal to the physical stress on somebody. Yeah, an interesting study about that. Uh, Actually, a friend of mine, a colleague, but really a friend, uh, in a research setting, did studies on patients comparing exercise stress to emotional stress. He did nuclear stress testing. Most people know what that is now. It's a special test of the heart to determine the blood flow to the heart muscle. And he did side-by-side comparison in these individuals with treadmill exercise testing and an emotional stress test, which they had created. They saw the same results get out yes that's wild fascinating so let's not minimize what stress does to the heart major wow i feel like i've learned so much this episode how do you think that greater awareness and education about mental health and the cardiovascular health connection can benefit individuals in their preventative care efforts well, that I think is the is the six million dollar or ten million dollar whatever question. We we need to identify it as early as possible and be aggressive in managing it, either through personally motivation, personal motivation, self meditation, uh, exercise, etc. You know, following a, a regimen, a healthy diet, following our recommendations for that, and also sometimes professionals. So the earlier the better. Prevention is the is the key here. Once you've already developed heart disease and the uh, and the stresses are impacting that, it's oftentimes a little late in the game. You really want to get to this and identify it as early as possible. These are very, I said earlier, very stressful times. Anyone looking at the newspaper on a daily basis knows that. Don't watch the news at night. Watch Seinfeld. (laughs) I love that you keep saying that. (laughs) So good. Serenity now. Serenity now. (laughs) Doctor, I feel like yes. this has been a great episode. Thank do, you. do you have any last thoughts uh, to leave with our audience? No, I hope that the message I've uh, relayed today gets out to patients, families, and healthcare professionals to try to have uh, earlier identification preventive in a preventive way the stresses that might be actively uh, in, affecting our patients and, pre- and do whatever simple, if not necessarily complex, 
treatment modalities to reduce the stress. I think education is the key. Um, in my practice, I'm still actively practicing. I'm welcoming new patients and uh, happy to talk to them and go through the same analysis that we've talked about today. Awesome. And if somebody wanted to see care directly from you, where can they find you? I work at my cardiologist in South Miami. Our number is 305-666-4633, and our staff will set up an appointment. I'd be glad to see you. Awesome. And we're going to also link that down below along with the mycardiologist.com site where you can see over 50 healthcare providers in the state of Florida. And if uh, you liked what you heard today and you got value, please share, like, comment, give us some feedback and subscribe. Thank you for tuning in and make sure you hit subscribe if you haven't already. To learn more about My Cardiologist, please visit us at mycardiologist.com.